Acts chapter 28, verses 16 through 23. The book of Acts ends with the fulfillment of what was proclaimed at the beginning of the book. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his disciples who surrounded him before his ascension, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The gospel witness of the followers of Jesus began in Jerusalem, and we have traced that, that the progress of the gospel through Judea to Samaria, and now Paul is in Rome. And though there are parts of the earth, the gospel has obviously not reached to Luke, the writer of Acts, Rome was sufficiently distant and remote to meet the criteria. We've considered the book of Acts section by section, and in some cases verse by verse, but we should not forget it is in fact one unit, one story. As we begin the conclusion of our reading of this account of the acts of the Holy Spirit through the church, let's remember that Luke is not bringing an end to the story of the progress of the gospel, because that progress continues today. He is bringing his account to a satisfying conclusion that will, for the reader, for us, both summarize what's gone before and hopefully further enlighten us. Look with me at Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 16. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for concerning this sect. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. This is the word of the Lord. As Christians, we never outgrow evangelism. We never progress spiritually to a point where we can say, all right, well, it's time to move on from that. In fact, the more mature you become, the more you will see the need for evangelism and the better you'll be at it. It's worth noting again that the book of Acts opened with Jesus expecting his church to be about the business of witnessing. You shall be my witnesses, Jesus said. And now it's closing with the Apostle Paul 
with all of his ministry experience and wisdom, still seeking to be a witness for Jesus Christ. He did not outgrow evangelism. As we'll see, there are three important lessons we draw from this passage when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. They are simple lessons, and they are these. First of all, be proactive. Secondly, be ready. And thirdly, be aware. Be proactive, be ready, and be aware. So first of all, be proactive. Be proactive. In the year 60 AD, when Paul arrived in Rome, it's estimated the city boasted a population of nearly one million inhabitants. All roads literally led to Rome. And the reason for that was because the building of these roads was commissioned by the emperors of Rome to give military access to the entire empire. All roads figuratively led to Rome because it was the center of cultural achievement, of military prowess, of of political power. In less than 30 years, the message of salvation through Jesus of Nazareth reached the imperial city. And Paul knew with certainty God wanted him in this place to continue the proclamation of the gospel. Paul was still a prisoner, but his circumstances have suddenly improved. We read in verse 16 that he was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Essentially, Paul was under house arrest. He was able, as we see in verse 30, reading on down a little bit, to rent his own quarters. Now, most people in Rome, they lived in apartments rather than in houses. There was a lack of space like most urban areas uh, would have. Paul was allowed to have visitors who it seems had access to him at all times. The Lord so arranged it that Paul managed to conduct quite a ministry in the city, even in custody while he is awaiting trial. But of course, he was constantly reminded of his prisoner status for Paul was chained to a soldier by his right wrist. Members of the elite Praetorian Guard, uh, the soldiers who were stationed in Italy as opposed to the soldiers stationed in the provinces, they were the ones who were responsible for guarding Paul. And they would typically rotate one soldier every four hours. And this is what Paul refers to in his letter to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. He writes, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Paul's immediate circumstance was the captive audience he had before him with the guard chained to him. And the gospel made progress. In fact, as Paul wrote, it became known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard because Paul was speaking to each of these soldiers tasked with guarding him about Jesus. Now we might say, what a perfect opportunity to share the gospel. I mean, after all, where's the soldier going? Nowhere, at least until his shift is over. But the challenge, I believe for you and me, is would we seize such an opportunity? Think about it. Here's a man's man. He's a Roman soldier, an elite soldier for that matter. He's doing his duty and probably in most cases wishing he were somewhere else 
and doing something else besides exclusively guarding this strange Jewish man who talks incessantly about another dead Jewish man who he keeps insisting rose from the dead. You have the picture? But Paul did have a perfect opportunity with the soldiers that are chained to him. And he did not shy away from it. Sometimes those perfect opportunities are the ones that we make the most excuses about. What I mean by that is think about the people that you encounter on a regular basis. Think about the family member that you see at least three times a year. Think about the coworker that maybe you sit next to at the office every day. Think about your neighbor who you know is not a Christian. What are we doing with those frequent opportunities to proclaim what Jesus has done for us? Let us not let them pass us by. We read in verse 17, after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. So notice this first, Paul is being proactive. He's not waiting for the Jewish leadership to come to him. He's not waiting for them to hear that he has arrived in Rome, but he's trying to get ahead of the situation. If they were to hear about Paul from their cohorts in Jerusalem, or maybe they've already heard about him, Paul doesn't know at this point, that would put Paul at a disadvantage. He would then be fighting an uphill battle. But if he can get out in front of the story and answer their questions before they know what to ask, Paul will not spend as much time undoing the untrue negative reports. He can begin at the very least with the Jewish leadership in Rome having a neutral impression of him. And so he's proactive. Now, in one sense, this does not seem like the best approach. Think about it. You invite somebody to your home and then you proceed to tell them when they walk through the door what you've been accused of. They might be tempted to think, maybe you're a bit quick to defend yourself. Why the excuses if you've done nothing wrong? However, keep in mind that Paul is chained to a Roman soldier. He probably needs to go ahead and explain that. So for the sixth time, Paul makes a defense. And all of this is familiar to us. It's a summary of how he ended up in Rome, under house arrest, chained to a soldier. A question we need to ask is, why does Paul call the leadership of the Jews to himself first? And the answer is this, at least in part. The answer is because Paul always, as we've seen over and over again, takes the gospel to the Jews in a place before he goes to the Gentiles. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And then to further clarify his motives, we read in verse 20 that Paul says, I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. So even though Paul is the acknowledged apostle to the Gentiles, he always acknowledges that he is himself a Jew. He acknowledges that Jesus of Nazareth was Jewish. The long-awaited Messiah, the hope of Israel, has come. He died for the sins of everyone, but he came forth from the line of Abraham. He was born to a Jewish mother. And 
is a blessing. He is a blessing to the ends of the earth, that is to Gentiles, because he was promised to and through the Jewish people. It's an especially effective way to evangelize Jewish people when you point out all the ways Jesus of Nazareth fulfills the multiple Old Testament prophecies about their Messiah. Jesus is the hope of the world, yes, but he is the hope of everyone who believes because he is first the hope of Israel. And what this tells us is we need to know to whom we are talking. And that's the second point. Know your audience. Be proactive, but also know your audience. Every person that you share the gospel with is going to need a different approach. What I mean by this is there are different categories of approaching someone. The Jews needed a different presentation of the gospel than the Gentiles. The prophecies from the Old Testament about the Messiah are not relevant to an audience full of Gentiles. They don't know the Old Testament. But they are very relevant to a group of people whose lives revolve around the Old Testament scriptures, as do the Jewish population in Rome. Now, the divide of understanding here where we are in our time period, the divide of understanding between Jews and Gentiles is not especially applicable to us. But we are aware, I hope, that different people fall into different categories. Presenting the gospel to an elderly person who grew up in the South, in a Christian-influenced culture, who's attended church and is familiar with the Bible, at least from their childhood Sunday school days, presenting the gospel to them is going to be different, is going to call for a different approach than talking to, say, an 18-year-old who grew up influenced much more by the phone in his hand than by anything he ever heard in church. That is, if he even went to church. There are these huge generational differences. You're going to talk to a college-educated person differently than you will talk with someone who did not graduate high school. And I don't mean that you're going to talk down to the latter, but hopefully you'll be aware that educational levels might affect how a person processes information. You're going to share the gospel with a five-year-old differently than you will with a 55-year-old, right? People are in different categories. In Nigeria, I spoke to a Muslim member of the Fulani people who could not read and never been to a day of school differently than I'm speaking to you this morning. Not only is there a difference in the language I'm using, but I mean, I'm taking into account your background, just as I took into account their background. Your view of the world, their view of the world. So here's what the text reminds us of. While you're being proactive, different people need different approaches. Now the message never changes. The heart of our message as Christians is always Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. That doesn't change. But how you present the gospel, what you choose to emphasize, the angle from which you approach your presentation, that will differ. You need to be sensitive to who's before you. Our goal is what? Is to lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But before that will happen, we have to make Jesus known. Before he can be known, he must be understood. No one is going to trust in what they don't understand. 
Now, I've known some Christians to think like this. Take the mindset. It doesn't matter how I present the gospel. I just need to tell them. They will either believe or they won't believe that my duty is done. This is what I call the hammer method. You take your gospel hammer and you beat people with truth. If everyone is a nail, they all need a good whopping with a hammer. The reality is, however, not everybody's a nail. The problem with this attitude, besides the insensitivity, is that we don't see that pattern in Scripture. Paul always tailored the gospel to his audience without altering the substance of his message. If you really care about somebody as a person, if they are not a project, but a human being made in the image of God with an eternal soul, then you will care enough to communicate the life-changing message of Jesus with them in such a way that they understand. You're not just going to beat them over the head with facts. Knowing who is in front of you is related to being proactive. If you're making the effort to have gospel conversations, you should also make the effort to know who you are having the conversation with. Let's care about people as people. We need to keep in mind that when it comes to evangelism, the person that's in front of you is loved by God. God has provided a way for them to be reconciled to him. And when you tell them about that way, who is a person named Jesus, you're not telling them simply because it's your Christian duty. You're not telling them just because it's expected of you. Your primary motive should be the desire to see that person experience the love of God. And this includes, this includes being delivered from the wrath of God. This includes forgiveness of sins. This includes justification. Jesus died to receive the punishment they deserve. Jesus secured their forgiveness through his blood. Jesus rose from the dead to bring them to God. All of this is true and necessary, but the reason God has provided a way for all to be saved is because of his great love. God is love. And what are you doing when you're sharing the gospel with somebody? You're inviting them. Come and see that the Lord is good. Come and see. If God pursues people because he loves them, we should too. Being proactive in evangelism is one way to show love. Secondly, be ready. Be ready. Paul's defense has three parts in our passage. First, he says in verse 17 that he has done nothing against the Jewish people. Well, this is important for him to point out immediately. The reason he's in custody is not because the Romans accused Paul of anything, but because the unbelieving Jews in Judea did. So if any antagonistic statements have reached Rome about Paul, they've come from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. Secondly, in his defense, Paul mentions in verse 18 that the Romans were willing to release me because there were no grounds for putting me to death. So this is what, if you remember, the governor Festus said to King Agrippa about Paul back in Acts chapter 25. But I found that he, that is Paul, had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. 
Paul wants to make clear to the Jewish leaders in Rome that even the Romans could not find anything with which to condemn him. And thirdly, third part of his defense, Paul relays that he was compelled to appeal to the emperor. He says, but when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Paul could have stood trial before the Jewish leadership, but he knew if he did that, what the verdict would be. He would never get a fair hearing, and so he felt he had no other option than to take his case directly before the emperor. Now, Paul probably said more than is recorded here by Luke, and Luke is just giving us a summary, but this is surely the gist of what he communicated. Surprisingly, the Jews in Rome, they had not heard a thing. Verse 21, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem who so opposed Paul did not even follow up. Now keep in mind, if they had sent a contingency to Rome, it's a long, expensive journey. Not to mention it would have been time-consuming. And there would have been the cost of having to prosecute the case against Paul, legal expenses that would be charged to Jerusalem, and so the Jews in Rome, they had not even received a letter giving them a heads up. Their answer to Paul's statements is found in verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For regarding this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. These leading men, though they had not heard of Paul, they were certainly aware of the Christians, the sect as they called them. Claudius, he was the emperor before the current emperor, which is Nero. Claudius, the former emperor, if you recall, he had expelled, kicked the Jews out of Rome. And that was about 10 years before Paul's current situation. A Roman historian named Suetonius, who wrote in the second century, about a generation after Paul's imprisonment, he wrote this about Claudius, the emperor, he said, Claudius banished from Rome all the Jews who were constantly making disturbances at the instigation of one Crestus. So it's generally believed and recognized that Crestus is a mispronunciation of Christ. Suetonius, this historian, he kept hearing Christ, and he thought he was hearing about a man named Crestus. So what probably happened was the unbelieving Jews in Rome, they took issue with the followers of Christ in Rome, which we know that happened over and over in various cities, and that created a disturbance which came to the Emperor Claudius's attention. And all Suetonius, this historian knew that was writing about it, was that the public peace had been breached, and that involved the Jewish community and someone named Crestus. But we understand were the followers of Christ. And so what did Claudius do? He expelled the Jews 10 years before, and they only recently returned under Nero's rule. Why am I pointing all of this out? Because the unbelieving Jews that came to Paul in Rome, they did not want to repeat. They did not want to be expelled again. They just got back. And the memory of this gave them pause when they considered who Paul is and the sect he represents. They said, it is known to us that it's spoken against everywhere. 
but they are careful. They are careful. You notice their attitude is not hostile toward Paul. In fact, they are curious. Verse 22, we desire to hear from you what your views are. Now, Paul's encountered so much antagonism from the unbelieving Jews over the years. I'm sure this came as a pleasant surprise. Wow, you're curious. Okay. They're asking Paul to share with them what he believed about the hope of their nation, Israel. We need to be ready when such opportunities arise. 1 Peter 3.15 states, Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Sometimes we're praying for people to be open to God's word. Yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we do not have much hope they will be. And so, we're surprised when they are. We shouldn't be surprised, especially if we've been praying for them, right? The opportunity you've been praying for, there it is. Be ready to make a defense. Now, this doesn't mean we look at the conversation as a battle. I mean, yes, we are defending our position, our belief system as Christians, but primarily we are giving an account for the hope that is in us. People see something fascinating in the followers of Jesus. That is hope. What is hope? Well, it's an excitement about the future. An expectation of what's to come. It's a reason to get out of bed and face the day. Biblical hope, the way the Bible talks about hope, is not wishful thinking. It is certainty. The Christian is certain that everything God says about himself is true, and everything he said he will do will come to pass. The Christian is hopeful because his future is secure. No matter how hard things are right now, hope tells us they will not remain this way. No matter how wrong everything is, hope tells us all will be made right. The absence of hope, I would argue, is the tragedy of our time. Did you know that there are 1.2 million suicides every year? Every 10 minutes in the U.S., someone takes their own life. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for 15 to 24-year-old Americans. Why do people commit suicide? Well, there are many reasons, but they can all be summarized in this statement. They lost hope. They lost hope. They no longer feel like living because the future seems unbearable. People are longing for something to live for. They are desperately seeking for a reason to get up in the morning. Right here in this community, right here, there are those who have lost hope. Hope is like oxygen. Your soul will die without it. And here we are, followers of Jesus Christ, possessing hope himself. His name is Jesus. Paul called Jesus the hope of Israel because Jesus is the hope of Israel. He is the hope for everyone who places their trust in him. When you have hope, people will notice. You will stand out. 
especially in a society where so many are wondering what to live for. Yes, we, we each have our families and our careers and our plans and our hobbies, but none of these things that I just mentioned can bear the weight of our expectations. All of them are subject to fail. You can lose your job tomorrow. You can lose your health. You could lose your spouse, God forbid. You could lose a child. Nothing is guaranteed in this world. We understand that. And when you go around placing the weight of your expectations on things of this world, even good things, you will eventually be disappointed. They cannot bear the weight of your expectations. If all of your hope is leaning upon that which is not guaranteed, the loss of that thing, if you lose that thing you have placed your hope in, even if it's a good thing, if all of your weight is leaning on that, if you lose it, it will crush you. But it doesn't have to crush you. And here's the reason. To the Christian, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That's Romans 6, 8.39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Why? Because Jesus suffered separation on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? The reason is because God forsook him. The father turned away from the son. The anguish of the son was real and raw. There was no other way. In order for Jesus to take the punishment you deserve, he was cut off from fellowship with his father. Punishment he did not deserve. The wrath of God stored up against sin from the creation of the world was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Talk about separation. Talk about rejection. Talk about experiencing hell. That's what happened to Jesus. And because Jesus lost everything in that moment, tasting death, experiencing hell, losing the sense of God's presence, cut off from his love, because Jesus lost everything, you never have to despair again. For the one who places their faith in Jesus Christ, the future is guaranteed. Though you may lose everything in this life, you will only taste physical death. What are you promised? In Christ, you're promised the presence of God dwelling within you today and the fullness of his presence in the age to come. Jesus ensures by his resurrection that your hope is a living hope. Because Jesus lives, you will live also. There's nothing you can lose that will separate you from the love of God. There's nothing you can lose that will separate you from God's love. And if you have that kind of hope, you better believe that people will notice. They'll hear it in your words. They will see it in your eyes. They will feel it in how you live your life. And so when they ask you to give an account, hey, why are you so hopeful? When they say, we want to hear from you what your views are, don't be surprised. You prayed for this opportunity. You were proactive in pursuing this opportunity. Now, like Paul, you are ready to give them an account for the hope that is in you. Be ready. 
Thirdly, be aware. Be aware. We read in verse 23, When they had set a day for Paul, people came to him at his lodging in large numbers. You've been proactive, you're ready, and now someone's ready to give you a hearing. What are you going to say? Well, there's no formula, and surely you will follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in that moment, but still there needs to be substance. There needs to be something stated in your own words to offer to the hearer. So notice what Paul says in verse 23. He was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Anytime you have a gospel conversation, and I hope you're having those, your goal is to persuade them concerning Jesus. That's your goal. It doesn't matter if the person is a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if they're a boomer or a Gen Zer. It doesn't matter if they're an obvious sinner or a closet sinner. It doesn't matter if they're a notoriously bad person or a model citizen. You want them to come to know Jesus, right? He's their only hope. And if you know him, you know the hope that he brings. And those around you need to know the hope as well. It's always your goal to persuade them concerning Jesus. No matter what else you may say, no matter how much truth you bring to bear, no matter how passionately you speak or how affected your hearer is, if you are not in the end persuading them concerning Jesus, you're on the wrong track. Whatever they take away from the conversation, though it might be helpful in the short term, ultimately it will not help them if they are not persuaded concerning Jesus. But notice how Paul does this. It's instructive to us. Notice how Paul does this. There's a general approach and there's a specific approach. Now this general approach is applicable to anyone to whom you are talking. But the specific approach depends upon your specific audience. Paul is aware of his audience. Here's the general approach. This is for everybody. The general approach is the kingdom of God. Where do I get that? Look at verse 23. It's right there. Paul was testifying about the kingdom of God in order to persuade them concerning Jesus. In other words... You seek to persuade people concerning Jesus by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. And so it would be good to understand what the kingdom of God is. Now the kingdom, it's frequently referred to by Jesus in the Gospels, and we've seen it often repeated in the book of Acts. It was part of the apostles' message, the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God is a whole teaching in and of itself, but for our purposes, when it comes to persuading people concerning Jesus, it's important to understand how Paul uses the phrase. We tend to think of a kingdom as the, the physical domain, the land, the holdings under the authority of a king. And it is. It is that. His kingdom. But it's more than that. Really, a kingdom is everything in the sphere of a king. Everything that's under his authority. Think about the king of England. I'm reading a biography right now about Henry VIII. And so this is fresh in my mind. Not so much relevant today, but think about a king of England. There was a time 
when to be king meant the land of England was under his authority. Now, earls and barons and dukes, they had land holdings, but ultimately the king had the final say as far as what happened in his domain. He could take your land and give it to somebody else, or he could take your land and keep it for himself. The land was under his authority. The commerce was under his authority. The economy, that is. The people, obviously, were under his authority. Everything in England, his sphere was under the rule of the king of England. He called the shots. He called the shots. It belonged to him. It was his domain. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. It is where everything is under God's authority. And because people can reject the authority of God in their lives, they can reject the kingdom. If a person didn't like the king of England, fine. You can move to France and be into somebody else's domain. You can reject the authority. When Paul speaks of God's kingdom as it pertains to salvation, he is saying that God has established his kingdom and the king is Jesus. Anyone who follows Jesus submitting to his lordship is under his authority, under his sphere, within his domain. The Holy Spirit, through faith in Christ, brings God's rule to the heart of every believer. King Jesus, through the Spirit, takes up his residence in your life as the final authority. He has the say. Everything comes under his sphere. And in bringing the kingdom of God to you, you in turn cooperate with God to bring his kingdom rule and reign into your experiences, into your relationships, into your work, into your rest. You are under the authority of King Jesus. And you bring the authority of his presence into every area of your life. Now you're thinking, I'm supposed to say all that to a person when I'm talking about the kingdom of God? Not necessarily. No matter who you're talking to about Jesus Christ, you need to explain and testify about the kingdom of God. But this is as simple as talking about what it means for you to live your life in submission to a loving king instead of in submission to your own desires or in submission to the opinions of others, or in submission to a hundred other things that tend to sit on the throne of our hearts. We all submit to something. If you are a Christian, you have a new king. So tell people what it means to live in relation to him. Tell them what that means. That's the general approach. But finally, let's consider the specific approach. The goal is to persuade people to trust Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is the reality, the new sphere that a person enters into when they are converted. But now, because Paul is talking to unbelieving Jews, he is what? Specifically, explaining from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. So this is the specific way that Paul addressed the audience before him. We talked about this earlier. These are Jews. And so Paul makes use of the Old Testament scriptures. That is the law and the prophets to persuade them. 
The Old Testament is the reference point for the Jews. They read it. They know it. They are expecting the Messiah promised by it. If these were Gentiles, Paul would not use the Old Testament. How do we know that? Well, we've already seen that happen. Gentiles, they didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't read it. They were not expecting a Messiah promised by it. And so Paul, and we saw this when he spoke to the philosophers in Athens back in Acts chapter 17, he would take a different approach. If it's Gentiles, he would speak of the creation. Everyone, even if they don't know the Bible, instinctively knows there is a creator. Why? Because there is a creation. Paul, he would speak of coming judgment. Everyone's conscience tells them of the coming reality of a judgment wherein we will all give an account. You don't have to know the Bible to understand that. There's things that are instinctive to us that Paul would use as a reference point because he was aware of his audience. And you should be too. Now, my intention this morning is not to go over different approaches of how to point people to Jesus, but for us to realize that there are different approaches that are needed in order to reach the person that is standing in front of you. Be aware of who you're talking to. The Jews anticipated a Messiah, so Paul showed them how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the prophecies. The Gentiles worshipped the creation, so Paul showed them how the Creator is the only one worthy of worship. And the Creator has revealed Himself through Jesus Christ. Maybe the person in front of you has lost hope. Show them how Jesus is your hope. And how he can be theirs as well. Maybe the person that you're engaged with, in conversation with, is young or is ignorant of the Bible, searching for meaning. Show them how Jesus gave you meaning and how he can do that for them as well. Find that reference point. Be aware of who you're talking to. Everyone needs Jesus, whether they know it or not. And everybody is already submitting to something. Everybody will make something or someone their king, their final authority. But not everyone will be reached in the same way. Be proactive, be ready, and be aware. And when that opportunity comes, show that person how Jesus lived the perfect life that they failed to live and how, how he died the death they deserved to die. And how he rose physically on their behalf to bring them to God. Tell them in a way that makes sense to them. And tell them like you love them. God does. And we love them because he first loved us. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are reminded as we've been frequently in the book of Acts. How we are called to be witnesses right where we are. So Lord, help us to be mindful of the opportunities that come our way, to be ready for them, to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit in those moments, and just to allow your love as demonstrated in Christ to flow through us. Lord, as a church, we want to be used by you to reach this community. We know that there are people hurting, that there are people who have lost hope, that there are people who are desperately searching for meaning 
And we have the answers. And you desire for us to take those answers to them. Lord, help us to do that. And we'll give you the glory as you build up your church. In Jesus' name, amen.